0: Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm an integrative and functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and well over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a school in practitioner mentorship where we help other clinicians level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what this show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I would love for you to subscribe to the show, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Now give me the mic so I can take it away. This episode is part of our Functional Nutrition Podcast Legacy Series. Through the months of April and May, we will be releasing two shows each week, you lucky ducks, one brand new episode, and a Legacy Series episode, which is a re-release of our top downloaded shows. Think about it like the People's Choice episodes. This is because we have new listeners coming to the show all the time, and we want you to have easy access to the top shows, and we've got longtime listeners that love to listen to the best of the best. Hey, if you're ever looking for a specific topic or show, don't forget to check out our website. We've got a special search feature that makes finding shows super easy. So here's a Functional Nutrition Legacy Show. Hello, my podcast family. Today we're gonna talk about the low FODMAP diet. So get ready to dive in. I have a bit of a funky relationship with the low FODMAP diet personally. Um, So a little bit of an insight into my health history if you don't know it. Actually, we're not going to get into the full story because it's a long one, but I tested positive for SIBO not long after I received a diagnosis for systemic sclerosis, also known as scleroderma. So within that time frame, I also got the SIBO diagnosis and those two conditions um, often pair together. So because I had gotten the autoimmune diagnosis. I was already dabbling in AIP, autoimmune paleo protocol. I was dabbling in the GAPS diet because I was dealing with some digestive stuff. I was absolutely determined to get my health under control and put my disease into remission because number one, I felt terrible. And number two, I was scared. I was really scared and I wanted to do everything in my power to fix it. And since I was still in that... Fixing through food and diet mentality, like I will fix this if I am able to control my food enough. Um, I went diet first. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar, AIP and the GAPS diet are both two extremely restrictive diets. They're they're therapeutic, healing diets, but they're really restrictive in that they pull a lot of foods out. So I was in this like stress mindset anyway. I was like really worried about my health. I was on these restrictive diets. And then I did a SIBO breath test. And SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And when I when I tested positive, I was like, oh, well, then I guess I have to layer on a low FODMAP diet as well. And combining AIP and low FODMAP together was the thing that like really sent me over the edge. Um, I didn't have, this is, this is years ago, this is at this point almost six years ago now, I didn't have all of the tools at my disposal that I do now. And so I was really just trying to, okay, I gotta heal this through diet. I didn't know a lot of other choices. And so I I did the best with the information that I had. And I remember calling my mom crying, being like, I can't do this. Like I struggled with disordered eating for 13 years. I was anorexic and then bulimic. And I just, I was like, how I can't make sense of this in my head that the only way to heal is through restriction. Restriction led to so many of my problems. I can't, I just can't wrap my head around this. Like I can't live like this. I I can't do it. And um, I remember her coming over, she lived 45 minutes away at that point. And she came over and we like talked through it. And I kind of like settled on a plan that worked for me that wasn't so restrictive. But I, I, rem- I just remember being so, upset and overwhelmed, and I just see so many people who are dealing with a diagnosis or trying to figure out their health on their own, they're in this same place of like, I can't, you know, either, I feel like this is the only way to heal, and then they start going into the the orthorexic path of like being so hypervigilant with food, or just being like, I can't do this at all. And so, Anyway, I definitely um, low, the low-fodmap diet is a very challenging diet to follow because it's not just like oh pull out gluten or pull out grains. There you're pulling out a lot of different, a lot of different foods that it can feel really, really tricky. Um, so, I have this rather unpopular opinion that, despite the fact that I see a lot of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, in my practice, I very rarely implement a low FODMAP diet with my clients. So I know that that is kind of like a a radical thought when it comes to SIBO as low FODMAP diet is like the sweetheart Um, not only in the functional medicine world, but also now in the conventional medicine world. It's very interesting because when I received my SIBO diagnosis, I I was working with a gastroenterologist or had an appointment with a gastroenterologist who was supposed to be like the best of the best in my area. And I remember in that appointment asking her, after I got the the positive SIBO diagnosis, asking her if she thought I should go on a low FODMAP diet. And she kind of laughed. She's kind of gave me like a... (laughs) How do you even know about that diet? And um, it was kind of embarrassing to be honest with you, because I was like trying to like do my own research and f- come up with some answers for myself. And so she kind of like laughed me out of the office a little bit because at that point, the c- conventional medicine had not had not adopted the low FODMAP diet. Now I think we're seeing. This is again six years ago. Now we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of people kind of championing championing the um, the benefits of a low FODMAP diet, even in conventional medicine. I was I was joking with my uh, my practitioners and my practitioner training that it's almost like. Uh, oh, you have tendonitis in the knee? Have you, have you tried a low FODMAP diet? You know, like low FODMAP diet is like the thing that, that fixes everything now. So a lot of people are hearing about it. A lot of people are asking about it. Um, when I polled Instagram for questions. Got a lot of questions. So I'm going to kind of group the questions together to make sure I cover all of the bases, get all of your questions answered today. Um, One of the questions was that, was I've heard of a low FODMAP diet, but what is it actually for? Like who would need a low FODMAP diet? So it's, it's primarily used for IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and SIBO. And I lumped those two together because we know that around somewhere between 60 to 80% of IBS, the underlying cause is actually SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Symptoms of IBS are same, if not similar to, or similar, the same to those of SIBO. Um, And so this is usually when a low FODMAP diet is implemented. And um, it can really help to mitigate symptoms. So it can have some clinical utility for sure. So we'll we'll discuss that a little bit. Somebody had asked if I will do a SIBO episode. I mean, I've definitely touched upon SIBO and kind of like addressed it here and there throughout the past, what, three and a half years of this podcast. But I will most likely not do a full tilt SIBO episode. And I wanna let you know why. One is that there's multiple types of SIBO, and they all the different types of SIBO require different treatment strategies. There are also multiple causes of SIBO, so different things. SIBO is not really a diagnosis in and of itself. It's usually a result of something causing it to occur, and it's as important to try to find the cause of SIBO as it is to treat the bacteria that is leading to SIBO. Um, so there are just so many multiple layers of treatment and the recurrence rate is extremely high, really depending on the type of SIBO, depending on what's causing the SIBO and figuring all of that out requires a deep skill set it requires experience it requires access to different types of testing and then it also requires that you know what to do with the information after you test i've had a lot of clients come to me who had been who had gotten the SIBO breath test Um, but were incorrectly diagnosed with something based off of improper analyzation of their test. So it's not just getting the test, but it's also, and I'm trying to really drive this point home with like all types of testing. It's not just getting the test done. It is also like, do you have somebody that can analyze that test for you and like really knows understands the data that they're looking at um i and i say this because i've had such an uptick of folks reaching out to me saying hey i've got a i've gotten a dutch test done or hey i gotten a stool test done can you help me with the analyzation because my practitioner is kind of falling short and that's like a real real thing so just because you hear about a test doesn't mean you should immediately go and get it done unless you're working with a skilled clinician who knows how to analyze that data or else you just have more data, more confusion, and more stress. So the point is, the SIBO conversation is a really, really nuanced discussion. And I mean, for example, I'm creating SIBO content for my practitioner training right now. And it's like, I don't know, around 10 hours of content to just to talk about SIBO. So it's, it requires a lot of discussion and going down different avenues in order to really really do a comprehensive overview, which is what I like to do. Um, And I I, honestly, I don't think people should be out there trying to self-diagnose and self-treat SIBO. I think this is one of those areas where you want to enlist the help of an experienced clinician um, because of all of the things I just discussed, right? Somebody that can help you suss out what kind, what are the underlying causes, all that stuff. Now, of course, I reserve my my right uh, to change my mind on this, Um, but I haven't changed my mind in three and a half years. We've gotten a lot of requests for SIBO discussions um, and I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna not do it. (laughs) Um, So instead, my current focus is going to be directing all of this information into my practitioner training so we have more SIBO savvy practitioners out there to help the folks who are struggling because I know that there are in fact a lot of folks struggling. So just as, uh, just to, so you can understand SIBO is not, really an overgrowth. It's a little bit of a misnomer, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's not like there's an inoculation of bacteria, it's really that bacteria have been translocated because we have plenty of bacteria that live normally in the GI tract in in the colon, right? In the large intestine. With 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 small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, they've they've made it to the wrong spot. So they're in the small intestine, which is not really where they should be. Ideally, the small intestine is sterile, relatively sterile in comparison to the large intestine, meaning that it just shouldn't have as as many bacteria. They're really like two different worlds, two different planets of the type of bacteria that we would see in the small intestine and the large intestine. So SIBO is when the stuff that belongs in the the large intestine has, has moved into the small intestine. Why? Well, those are the underlying causes that you have to investigate. We won't get into them on this show. Um, What happens, as we know, bacteria ferment our food. That's what bacteria do. They gobble up the food that we eat. The fibers that we can't digest as humans, our bacteria are able to ferment them and do really cool things with the fibers. Like bacterial poop, bacterial metabolites um, create a, a tremendous amount of health benefits for us and our bodies. And I know that I've discussed that at length in different gut episode. So I won't get into that. Um, but so the point is we're used to fermenting. We're used to that. We're used to our bacteria fermenting our food in the large intestine. But when we start fermenting in the small intestine, that's when we start to experience symptoms like gas, bloating, um, upper GI stuff like burping, belching, uh, nausea, um, uh, Reflux, like the feeling like food sits like a brick, or feeling like you know you look nine months pregnant, um, all of that is because bacteria are doing their job, but they're doing their job in the wrong spot. So with SIBO, we have fermentation, and when bacteria ferment food, it produces gas. That gas creates distension and bloating throughout the abdomen. What can, this can do is kind of create this cycle because when we get bloating, that can open the ileocecal valve, which is the valve between the small intestine and the large intestine. So that allows more bacteria to move up into the small intestine, creating, well, more SIBO. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. Now, uh, This Life Done Well sent in a question saying, or she was saying she was diagnosed with SIBO. She was told to do a low FODMAP diet and antibiotics. She refused the meds. She's still in pain. Will a low FODMAP diet alone heal SIBO? And this is such a phenomenal question because I feel like this is the most misunderstood thing when it comes to a low FODMAP diet. People are looking for the natural route. People don't people have learned that antibiotics are not great. In fact, antibiotic overuse can lead to SIBO. So people wanna shy away from antibiotics. Now Rifaximin, which is one of the main antibiotics used for SIBO treatment, Works in a very different way than other antibiotics, where it stays pretty much localized to the small intestine rather than having this big systemic effect. It has some, it works in a very interesting, very unique, and very cool way. Um, so I can't, I'm not going to advise this life done well on what to do. I will refer you back to your physician and say, you know, do what they're suggesting that you do perhaps. However, um, I can tell you that a low FODMAP diet alone will not heal SIBO. Hard stop, end scene. This is a very important concept. You cannot cure SIBO through diet. We don't use diet to treat the SIBO, unless we're talking about the elemental diet, which is a whole other ballgame, and that is the treatment in and of itself, and that just requires you drinking liquid meal. It's a very specific, expensive, disgusting drink that you have to drink for two weeks. That is the treatment. You don't do it alongside. Antibiotics or antimicrobials, you only do. That is extremely psychologically hard. It is not fun. Um, I don't utilize that in my practice um, just because I haven't had to. Um, I haven't had to. I'm, I'm, I feel lucky in that sense. So anyway, we're, we're not using tri- diet to treat SIBO. Diet can't kill bacteria, right? SIBO is bacteria in the wrong spot. Those of bacteria do have to be addressed, and diet alone cannot kill off the bacteria. What it can do is help with symptom, uh, symptom management. It can sometimes be a means of extending remission, but it's not addressing the overgrowth. So again, low FODMAP diet is not a treatment for SIBO. Now, how these diets work in order to reduce symptoms, because they are really quite, the low FODMAP diet is really quite effective at reducing symptoms of both IBS and SIBO. And that is really the goal. It's to reduce the fuel that feeds the bacteria. Now, all carbohydrates can be fermented by bacteria into gas. And so SIBO diets restrict fermentable fibers, so we're pulling back the fuel source of those bacteria. And that is what leads to the reduction of symptoms because without their food, bacteria aren't producing as much gas. But again, you cannot eradicate bacteria with diet alone. So we're not seeing clinical results with the low FODMAP diet, but we see are seeing improvements in symptoms. I know I keep saying the same things over and over and over again, but I really want you to hear me and understand this concept. So the SIBO diet lowers carbohydrate. So it's lowering the fermentation ability of bacteria and it's lowering the gas and in doing so it will lower symptoms. So, but it's not fixing the problem. Now there's multiple ways to remove carbohydrates. Um, there's no one right way to do it. It's just that the low FODMAP diet is the most popular and it's really the most researched, I would say. So this is, this tends to be the, the one that we see most of the time. Now there are two schools of thought because people, uh, quite a few questions came in like, well, when would we use a low FODMAP diet? And there's two big schools of thought on this. And I, um, Clinically speaking, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. One school of thought is that we want to starve the bacteria as we kill them. So when we're doing a a protocol to address the SIBO, whether it's with pharmaceutical uh, prescription antibiotics or herbal antimicrobials, we, alongside that, are doing a low FODMAP diet. So we're removing the food source of bacteria while we kill them off. The other school of thought is that you feed the bacteria while you kill them. So you kind of wanna give yourself more of those fibers, more of those carbohydrates, more of those starches, because it pulls the bacteria out of hiding, and then your kill protocol is more effective at killing them off. Um, There is definitely, there's, there's different opinions on this. I don't think we have a tremendous, at least from what I've seen, have a tremendous amount of research to say one is better than the other. Typically how I go about it in practice is based off of symptoms. So if somebody has tremendous symptoms that's affecting their quality of life, then it might make sense to implement, um, to kind of like tweak around the carbohydrate intake a little bit so we can get them feeling better while we're treating them. Now let's get into the nitty gritty of what the low FODMAP diet actually is. FODMAP is an acronym and it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And yes, I can say all of that in my sleep. Um, These are different categories of fermentable carbohydrates. Here's the deal, you can react to one of them, you can react to some of them, or you can react to all of them. And why the low FODMAP diet can be overly restrictive, is that you're pulling out all of these foods that you might not actually be reactive to. Now, mono, when it comes to saccharides, mono is one, di is two, and oligo is few. So there are just different types of um, sugars. You know, one sugar, two sugars attached to each other, or multiple sugars, a bigger carbohydrate structure. Um, When it comes to a resource for food lists, the Monash University is a pretty trusted source for a low FODMAP diet, but I will read through the list so you can hear how complex this gets to me. Um, I will say that the Monash FODMAP app, when I look at it, I get like an immediate visceral response. I feel so stressed out looking at it because it, it looks like a restrictive diet. It looks like logging and tracking and portioning out and, and it is, and we'll talk about why. Um, and this is one of the reasons that I don't love a low FODMAP diet is it because it can feel like a real mind F, um, especially for somebody who has a history of restriction, who has a history of logging and tracking their food but has broken out of that cycle the last thing that i'm going to do is put somebody on a low fodmap diet who has like crawled their way out of a dark hole of logging and tracking and portioning and restricting their food source and that only comes from like being working with a a wide swath of people and seeing people like really spiral on these quote unquote, healing diets. Anyway, that was a tangent. But the first category we will talk about are oligosaccharides, fun to say, Um, also to eat if you can tolerate them. So in this category is fructans and GOS, galacto oligosaccharides. Now you might be familiar with GOS because it is a prebiotic. And we talk about prebiotics all the time and why they're so amazing for you, right? They're feeding the good bacteria. But if you've got good bacteria in the wrong spot, ouch, ouchy-wawas, it's going to cause you discomfort. And let's take a quick break so we can talk about Element. I'm so pumped to hear that you guys are digging this stuff. I knew you would. It's so... Freaking tasty. I did get a question about sodium. Somebody asked if I was concerned with the sodium content, and the answer is not at all. In fact, that's why I sought out Element as my electrolyte drink of choice. Active athletes, especially during hot weather, can lose up to seven grams of sodium per day just through sweat alone. And in order to replete that, to replace that, we need both water. And sodium, so we can reestablish appropriate and proper hydration. I'm active. I like to do hot yoga. Honestly, on my hot yoga days, I actually double down on Element. I know many of you are active as well. So, this is something that we really should be mindful of. Salt has been villainized. It's not the bad guy. We need salt, we need minerals, we need electrolytes. And if you want to do it in a yummy way, Element is your thing. So, right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. So, that's eight packets for free with any element order. It's a great way to try the flavor, see what you like, and you can get it at drinkelement.com forward slash funk. The deal is only available through my link. You got to go to dot com forward slash funk. You also get a no questions asked refund. So try it risk-free. You're going to love it now you you all have heard me talk about organifi's different powders i use them i love them they're a sponsor of the show we are at the point where this show wouldn't happen without our sponsors so shout out to organifi Uh, thank you very much but the powders um so i'm looking i have gold powder in my hand right now because i was having some earlier this is the turmeric like the the golden milk the turmeric elixir that also has Medicinal uh, medicinal mushrooms in it and lemon balm. You know it's my favorite herb. Uh, But if you look at the ingredient list, you'll also see acacia fiber, and that is a prebiotic fiber. So if you've ever noticed yourself dabbling in different mixes of things or taking a supplement and reacting negatively to it, just getting like gas or bloating from it, take a peek at the ingredient list and notice if it has prebiotic fibers in it. You might be responding negatively to prebiotic fibers. Does that mean you have SIBO? Not necessarily, but if you react in a really big way to fibers, it could be an indication that you've got some small intestinal bacterial overgrowth going on. Um, So oligosaccharides, fructans, and GOS. We've got barley, rye, wheat, different types of beans like soybeans, chamomile, oolong tea, cashews, pistachios, fennel, leeks, onions, shallots, garlic, inulin, chicory root, FOS. So these are all oftentimes, um, you'll see those listed on ingredients lists of different supplements and powders or protein powders nectarines dates dried figs plums prunes watermelon white peaches that is just one category of fodmaps then let's go on to disaccharides this is lactose found in dairy products and it's really not uncommon to be sensitive to lactose since a lot of us lack the enzyme lactase which helps us break down lactose so just because you you're sensitive to lactose does not mean that you have to go on a low fodmap diet forever and ever and ever Um, When I think about, because different dairy products have different varying degrees of lactose, and I always think about it as like the creamier dairy has more lactose, like the milks and the yogurts, ice cream, cream cheese, cottage cheese, ricotta, and then the harder things tend to be lower in lactose, like cheddar, feta, parmesan, butter is low in lactose because it's mostly fat. And then we have monosaccharides, which is fructose. So we know that we, we have fructose in things like high fructose corn syrup, honey, agave nectar. But it also, um, we also get fructose in fruit, right? Apples, cherries, figs, mangoes, pears, watermelon. We can see it in some veggies like asparagus and sunchokes and snap peas. And then polyols are sugar alcohols. So they occur naturally in some fruits and veggies, sorbitol and mannitol, but then we also see them in artificial sweeteners um, like sorbitol, mannitol, molitol, isomalt, xylitol. Like anything with an all is just a sugar alcohol. Um, and it's some people ha- react pretty negatively to these. Um, as far as foods go, we find them in apples, apricots, blackberries, um, lots of the stone fruit, so peaches, pears, plums, uh, watermelon, cauliflower, mushrooms, snow peas, and corn. So can you see why this diet is pretty stressful? I mean, it, it's it's pulling foods from a lot of different places. I, I feel like when somebody first sits down and looks at the low FODMAP diet, they're like, Oh shit. <laughs> you know, it's like I was, you know, we work so hard to eat healthy foods and then all of a sudden to have that like flip turned on our head and be like, yeah, actually you can't eat any of these. Feels a little bit jarring, a little bit abrasive. Rad healing, uh which is a great handle, asked, "Is this a bucket quantity thing? Like you have symptoms once the bucket overflows." Um and I feel like I've ref- I've When i was talking about histamines i referred to the bucket um so it's similar it doesn't work exactly like histamines but it's definitely a a case of the dose makes the poison with fodmaps which is why on fodmap list you'll see some food listed out as portion sizes because in a smaller amount these foods might be lower FODMAP, but if you eat larger quantities, then they move into a higher FODMAP category. So for an example, you'll see an eighth of an avocado. Yes, you heard me right. An eighth of an avocado. I mean, I don't know the last time I ate an eighth of an avocado. Um, Or under a quarter cup of chickpeas or under 10 almonds, under a half a cup of broccoli. And to me, this is what is one of the more stressful parts of the diet in my eyes. It's it kind of encourages overthinking, right? You can see why it's stressful. You can see why it could be triggersome for folks with a history of disordered eating because you're really like micromanaging your portion sizes. Um, FODMAPs can also have uh, like an additive cumulative effect. So let's say you can tolerate one eighth of an avocado just fine or you can have half a cup or a quarter cup of chickpeas, no problem, but then you make a salad and you have avocados and you have chickpeas in there and you have a few almonds and you have some broccoli and you're combining the different ingredients. You're using all the low FODMAP portion sizes, but when you combine them all, all of a sudden now you have symptoms. So you do have to be mindful of that. Clover Clove asked, do you have to follow it 100%? You do not. It's not like gluten, where you'll get this big immune reactivity. We're not working with antigens here. We're talking about bacterial fermentation. Two completely different ball games. I know that I was talking in the celiac uh, gluten sensitivity episode. I was talking about um, you know how we create antibodies when we consume antigens, and these antibodies can stay in our system for six months, and it's really important to stay away from these foods for, for a good chunk of time, um, or we can still continue to get that immune reactivity. Completely different mechanism with a low FODMAP diet. You're really going based off of symptoms, right? So if you can get away being you know, like 80% or 70% and mitigate your symptoms, that's awesome. That is awesome. You're not like creating mayhem, destruction, and terror in your gut uh, every time you consume these foods. And I think that is a really clear or a big distinction that needs to be made because sometimes we'll eat the food and be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And we go into the self-flagellation and that really doesn't need to apply to a low FODMAP diet. If the food's causing you problems, your belly is gonna let you know. It will let you know pretty darn quickly. Um, Body, soul, wellness asks do you ever recommend it short term and if so in which cases one thing that's interesting is that you can do a low FODMAP diet trial like do a seven you know a a week to two weeks on a low FODMAP diet and notice does it get rid of your digestive symptoms if it does then you're probably dealing with SIBO and you should get tested for SIBO. So you can utilize it, it does have clinical utility because we know it's gonna drop down your symptoms in cases of SIBO and with IBS, and we know most IBS is actually SIBO. So if you go on a low FODMAP diet, you drop down your symptoms, then that's pretty telling that you've got something going on, but you should look into that when I do, when I utilize a low FODMAP diet, because again, it does help to mitigate symptoms in some people. um, The way that I approach it is more as an elimination diet, where the very first step is you remove all of the FODMAP foods, like all of the ones that I just mentioned, you pull them out for two weeks. Now, listen, if you do not notice an improvement in your symptoms in a week or 10 days, you're barking up the wrong tree. Okay. You, this, it's not going to like, magically get better on week three. If you give it your your full effort after a week or two weeks, you don't notice anything, this is not the diet for you. It is not helping you um, because we're really supposed to be managing symptoms. And if your symptoms aren't managed, what's the point? However, if, again, like I said, if you do notice an improvement and you haven't already been tested for SIBO, get tested for SIBO. I think that the most stress-free way to do this is to come up with like a really boring meal plan for two weeks. Keep it basic. Keep it boring. Repeat the same foods every day. I know that I always talk about variety uh, being king when it comes to our gut health, but like two weeks isn't going to kill you. So just keep it as stress-free as possible. It's like Obama wearing the same outfit every day. You can just eat the same, like maybe pick three breakfasts three lunches, three dinners, you know, follow some people on Pinterest or something that have low FODMAP recipes. And I don't know, I don't, I don't, is that how you do Pinterest? Do You follow people. I haven't been on Pinterest in a long time, but you know, it's great for recipes. So maybe you pin, there we go. You pin a bunch of low FODMAP recipes and you just kind of rotate the same ones out because that's going to mitigate some of your stress of like thinking of like how how, how much do I eat and what can I eat today and all that kind of stuff. The second step is reintroducing FODMAPs, but you do it by individual categories because you might react to one category, but not the other. So you're reintroducing things one at a time. So you reintroduce sorbitol, then you reintroduce mannitol, then you reintroduce lactose, then fructose, then fructans, and then GOS. You're, you're doing the foods, the food categories one at a time. All right. Shit is bananas right now. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Somebody recently asked me, what do you do when you're doing all of the things, you're practicing all of the tools, but things still feel really intense? And honestly, this is where Ned de-stress comes in for me. It is part of my daily routine right now. It's a certified organic formula, full spectrum hemp with CBG, CBD, and also ashwagandha. So it really helps to calm down the body and soothe down anxiety. If you need some support right now, fortify your stress response and get 15% off Ned's de-stress blend with code FUNK. Go to helloned.com forward slash FUNK or enter code FUNK at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you as always, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering myself and our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. In episode 233, Protein Intake in Building Muscle Mass, I talked about why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. We discuss it in a lot of detail. Amino acids make up half of your solid body mass. After water, they're the second most abundant substance in your body. Your body can make some amino acids, but essential amino acids like Keon Aminos really have to be obtained through protein or supplementation. And if you're deficient in them, you will not be able to build new muscle. Keon Aminos isn't just good for muscle. I've also noticed more energy, better recovery as well. It contains all nine essential amino acids. It's backed by over 20 years of clinical research, super clean, tastes amazing, with awesome flavors. Mango and lime are my favorite. If you're ready to simplify your supplement routine and you want to save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases, go to getkion.com forward slash funk. That's getkio ncom slash funk funk, to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. Whenever, this is important and I feel like it's just like simply not discussed enough, when, with any reintroduction for any elimination diet, you always want to do them in a low stress state with good food hygiene meeting. You're eating in a relaxed environment. You're eating with your feet on the floor. You're not multitasking because stress and fast eating, like cramming food in your face or eating on the go, can mimic food reactions. So you're not really sure, like is this just because I'm not digesting appropriately because I'm not in a relaxed state, um, or is it because I'm really reacting to these FODMAPs, okay? And the way that you do it is introduce one food, like a smaller portion, one day, and then if you don't get another reaction, the second day, you ramp up the portion. You eat more of that food. If there's still no reactions, you're good. You're good for that food. And then you can try out some other foods in that same category and be well on your way. If you do have reactions, you could be reacting to that food, and then you're gonna want to pull it back out and try it again later. Uh, The book by Danielle Capolino, she's an RD, it's called Healthy Gut, Flat Stomach. I absolutely hate the name, but I also know that you have to title books so they sell, and so kudos to her for finding uh, a name that will probably sell, because like low FODMAP diet probably isn't that sexy, or like here's the diet to get you to stop farting, probably is not gonna like sell a bunch of books. However, flat stomach, you better believe people are buying this. Um, Anyway, you can grab that if you wanna kind of walk through what an elimination diet would look like. So let's get into some more questions so we can close out this episode. Um, How should you use the information from a low FODMAP diet and transition on or off of it? Doctors suggest it forever, question mark. Um and then somebody else said how long should someone stay on a low FODMAP diet. So Dr. Mark Pimentel who is the dude when it comes to SIBO. He is all all into the research. He was the one that developed Rifaximin. He was the one that is like developing the testing for SIBO. He is super duper 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 deep into the research. He's also a clinician. So anything that he discovers in like clinical trials, you know, he's also applying, you know, anything that he discovers in research, he's applying to clinical trials and like actually like, you know, in the trenches, so to speak. So when he talks, I listen when it comes to SIBO. And he says that there's no denying that a low FODMAP diet will make you feel less bloated. The question is, what's the end game? And gee, doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) I feel like I say that about elimination diets across the board. What's the end point? Anytime you see an elimination diet, there should always be an end game. I had a client recently whose physician put her on a really restrictive diet—animal protein and like a small amount of veggies—indefinitely. She had been, she's been on this diet for a couple of years. Hell to the no 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 no! No, I lost my shit. I mean, I was like furiously texting and voxing with all of my colleagues to be like, can you believe this shit? (laughs) This is the problem. This is the problem today. Um, If somebody is putting you on or you're putting yourself on a restrictive elimination diet, understand that is a short term strategy and there needs to be an end game. There must be an, an exit strategy put in place. So if you're a clinician listening to this, Please, please, please do not indefinitely put people on restrictive diets. And if you only have one appointment with them, at least explain what the end game is going to look like so you don't just send them off into the world on this restrictive diet that they think they have to be on forever and ever and ever and ever the end good night. Uh, it's it's in my estimation, I'm not gonna say it. it, it it's not. It's not good, it's not good, okay. Anyway, FODMAP diet, it's not a lifelong diet. You really should only be on it for two to three months or short-term, short, short term. two to three months, a little bit arbitrary, but it's more of a short-term diet. So through the elimination diet, you might find that there are just certain foods that cause you to bloat, and you can avoid those at your own discretion, right? Like you might find like, holy smokes, I really react to garlic. I do not feel good when I eat garlic. Garlic just might be a food that you avoid ongoing. That's perfectly fine, that's not gonna mess you up. But most people should not be on like the full tilt, low FODMAP diet long term, because there are downsides. There are downsides. Think about all of the healthy, nutrient-rich foods that you're pulling out, so we can see nutritional deficiencies. We can also see, and this should come as no surprise if you've been following along with this podcast, we would also see a decrease in diversity in the gut microbiome. There's more research coming out about this, but data suggests that the diet, the low FODMAP diet, reduces bifidobacteria. Bifido are like some of our keystone species, really important. Um, There's some evidence that it reduces total bacterial abundance and concentration and it makes sense because we're restricting bacteria's food source, right? So, if we're restricting bacteria's food source, yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna lower them in numbers in the small intestine, but also in the large intestine. The low fodmap diet can be emotionally hard for people for the reasons that I've discussed. It can be very socially isolating because you cannot eat out really easily on a low FODMAP diet. If you've ever been on a low FODMAP diet, you're probably like nodding your head because it's really challenging to eat out of the house. And then it can be very triggering, especially if there's a history of disordered food, thought patterns, and behaviors. So I will say to close this out, on the flip side of that, Um, on the flip side of that, Noel et al, which is another really funny handle, Noel et al says, is reducing FODMAPs during triggering times for IBS bad? Example, PMS or travel? It is not that is one way that you can take care of yourself because sometimes with, with going into um, a funky time, like PMS or like you know, when hormones can impact what's going on at the level of the gut or travel, our anxiety about getting GI symptoms can almost like create the GI symptoms in and of itself. So I feel like for some people, it, it can actually feel like freedom to have something that works for those triggering times. IBS symptoms can, affect quality of life, it can create stress, it can exacerbate your symptoms. So having a tool on hand to break the cycle is huge, right? It's like Xanax for panic attacks. You know, when I used to get debilitating panic attacks in my early 20s, I had a prescription of Xanax that I would keep in my purse and just knowing it was there was enough for me to not get a panic attack because the threat of a panic attack was so stressful that it could prompt a panic attack, right? So we needed something to break that cycle. And that is sometimes what a low FODMAP diet can do. It's like, if all else fails, I know that I can pull out FODMAPs and reduce my symptoms and feel better. And I think that is a, a really, really great and smart way to utilize a low FODMAP diet. So anyway, hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully that answered your questions and shed some light on a low FODMAP diet, kind of like the do's and the don'ts and some tricks of the trade. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.